It's time for JT the Brick. Receiver from the University of Colorado, number 21, Cliff Branch. We kick off the summer of Cliff Branch. Tucker drops back to pass. Steps up. He looks. Over the middle. He's got it. Touchdown, Raiders! It's cut by Cliff Branch. The summer of Cliff. Cliff Branch. All summer long. JT the Brick. Prepare your phone call. I want Cliff content from you. What separated Cliff was he was amazing, meticulous route runner. As we count down to Cliff, the summer of Cliff on the flagship. And now, here's JT the Brick. Welcome back. Hour number two of the show, JT, in Vegas on the flagship of the Silver and Black. And we debut today the summer of Cliff Branch where we're giving you Cliff Branch content with some of his former teammates and people around the game. Our insiders will be talking about Cliff as we lead up to his induction into the Pro Football Hall of Fame coming up in August. So we got the end of June, which is now into July, and then that's it. All the whole month of July, I'm going to be here most of the time. There's a couple of conflicts I have, but I'm going to be here. Harry Ruiz, handpicked. To sit in for me, and he does a great job, the Latino voice of the Silver and Black. So he'll be in here for a couple of shows, and then training camp's around the corner. And it's going to go really fast, everybody. It's going to go from training camp into the preseason, which starts in Canton, into Cliff's induction, along with Richard Seymour, who played for the Raiders, and then the preseason games after the Canton game, and then keeping these players healthy. Oh, keeping these players healthy in the hot sun of Southern Nevada and keeping them fre- uh, legs fresh for what seems to be the most important road game of the year, according to you. When we ran that a couple weeks ago, the opening game is at the Chargers in Los Angeles to kick off the season before the home opener against the Arizona Cardinals. I'll be in Nashville and New Orleans this year, back out on the road where I need to be, uh, bringing the charge of the Raider Nation into two really important cities in Canton, and hopefully a playoff city, man, right? If they win and they do well, they're going to get a playoff game at home or on the road. So it's the summer of Cliff. What we're asking is for every caller that calls this show to mention Cliff at some time. You don't have to today. You can today. I got an open hour here. I have one guest coming up a little bit later on in the show, but I'm pretty free for the next 50 minutes. If you have anything you want to do to kick off the summer of Cliff, you could do that right now at 702-365-9200. Every day I come in here, there's breaking news on Deshaun Watson. We have new breaking news today. A lawsuit has been filed against the organization, the Houston Texans today, alleging the team was made aware of some of Deshaun Watson's massage preferences during a 17-month period in which he allegedly attempted to sexualize sessions with multiple women. The suit was filed by who else? The attorney representing the women, Tony Busby, as part of his representation of client Toy Garner, claims, now here this is, the Texans were alerted to Watson seeking out unqualified strangers for massages via Instagram by a company that he had been contracted by the franchise to provide professional therapeutic sessions to Houston players. The lawsuit today alleges the franchise had fielded complaints from the Houstonian Hotel regarding the number of women visiting Watson in a team-provided suite at the establishment. According to Tony Busby, the attorney, 
fielding those complaints as well as Watson being provided a non-disclosure agreement by team security to be used in massage sessions. That put the Texans in a position of enabling his rude behavior during encounters with women that ultimately resulted in 24 civil lawsuits against Watson. 24, sexual misconduct or sexual assault. 20 of the 24 suits from these women were settled earlier this month. The allegations in Garner's civil suit against Watson claim the quarterback aggressively exposed his body to her purposely uh, doing certain things to her. I won't read that because it's pretty graphic. The filing against the Texans alleged the team knew or should have known about Watson's alleged conduct in massages. Now, that's a really interesting lawsuit today. What did the Texans know? Because he's in a hotel that the Texans are aware of. He's using their massage room. Women are allegedly being violated, and this is happening. And, and Deshaun Watson is using strangers. Okay, here's the hook to the story, is that Deshaun Watson wasn't saying, oh, I have one woman who the Texans know about, and she signed the paperwork, and I keep going back there getting a massage. Why did he have and conduct these relationships with strangers? And when, and when did the Houston Texans become aware of this? I'll tell you one thing about the Texans. Add them to the list of teams under tremendous scrutiny now. It seems like every NFL team's got to worry about culture, what's happening behind the scenes, and it's tough. You know, I talked to someone off the record, and no need to mention his name. It doesn't have to do with the Raiders or anybody else, but we were talking about other businesses. If you're Vince McMahon in the WWE, if you're a concert promoter, if you own a Fortune 500 company and there's a toxic work environment, you don't lose your company. Basically, you clean up your company and you might have to pay fines or a lawsuit, but the ownership doesn't leave you. Doesn't leave you. The ownership doesn't lose the team unless it's drastic. And now there's a bunch of allegations against several owners in the league about workplace toxicity led by Daniel Snyder of the Washington Commanders. So what happens if Busby's lawsuit proves that there's documentation that the Texans were aware of some of the complaints, heard about it, didn't do anything about it, and let Deshaun Watson continue to conduct himself this way? I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. I don't know, but it's not good for the Texans. All right, let's continue on as we get going. Antonio is in Modesto for the summer of Cliff Branch. Thanks for calling. We appreciate it. What's happening? Hey, that, that Deshaun Watson stuff's interesting, man, but, uh, but I, I got to give it all to Cliff today. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think, I think about, I think about the, you know, and I was only a kid in 74, the, he runs, he, the ball, there's probably a slow motion. We don't know if the ball touches the ground. Cliff picks it up, runs back. Just see a hand game, runs it back, touch up. But to me, one of my best favorite plays is the 76th season, and Bill King has one of the greatest calls ever. It's in Chicago. Um, it's tipped up, tipped up. Branch comes down with it. Uh, uh, Bill King goes bonkers. I mean, he just goes crazy in that call. I hope you guys can find that call. But um, it, I, I, I just, I, I, I think when you when you talk about Cliff, I was listening to actually John Stallworth was on the NFL Network the other day, mm-hmm. and he mentioned Cliff. He mentioned Cliff, and and I, it's just you know, we'll say it a hundred times. Cliff should have been in before he passed, but I got the great opportunity to meet him in the Oak and Alameda County Coliseum. And I think it's great, uh, uh, JT, mm-hmm. what you're doing to have the fans, even the young kids, go YouTube. You can YouTube anything yeah, you and can. watch some Cliff Brad stuff, man. But thanks, JT. Thank you. Thank you for calling in today. Appreciate that. And when it comes to Cliff, great moments. When he came into the league, he had a problem with the drops. 
I talked to Morris Bradshaw about it, Fred Bolitnikoff. Cliff dropped the ball early in his career. When you're a young receiver and you drop the ball, Freddie Bolitnikoff had problems early in his career. When these guys cleaned it up, they became Hall of Famers. A lot of receivers don't get the opportunity nowadays to clean it up and have three or four years or two or three years to get their legs underneath them. Cliff was a track star in high school and at Colorado. Speed kills. No one could cover him in the open field. And he caught big plays, big catches in the playoffs and the Super Bowl. If you compare Stallworth and Swan's numbers to Cliff Branch, you scratch your head on why it took Cliff that long to get in. You do. And one of the things was there were so many Raiders were getting inducted from that era. He just got dropped. He just he was just a guy that they forgot about and didn't concentrate on him. And then when they had that special class two years ago where they went back to rectify the mistakes they made, they didn't let Cliff in and they brought in Drew Pearson. Come on. Drew Pearson over Cliff Branch? And then I was there last year and Har- Harold Carmichael got in over Cliff Branch? So it was just a matter of time until Cliff got in because I really believe it became an embarrassment for the NFL. If you're a Hall of Fame voter and Cliff Branch isn't in, that's an embarrassment to you. You have to be doing it personally. And I give Mark Davis all the credit here because Mark Davis and the Raiders' Silver and Black Productions, I was emceeing events where they'd get Joe Green in a room. And Mike Ditka, I remember one time I was hosting Ditka's event here in Chicago, and they asked Mike Ditka to come in a room, and I stood next to Coach Ditka and watched. And it was a 20-minute interview on Cliff Branch. And the Raiders started to accumulate all of this video of Mel Blunt, Joe Green, uh, legendary Cowboys, people that played against him from Kansas City, Bobby Bell. And they started accumulating the comments of how Cliff should be in. I really believe that had something to do with it. It was the vision of Mark Davis to never forget Cliff and continue to push forward. 702-365-9200. Mitch in New Jersey. Thanks for waiting, Mitch. Go ahead. You're up next. How you doing, um, JC? Thanks so much. Hey, three things about Cliff. I'll make it quick. No, I know I talk too much. Um, him and uh, Fred were one of the smallest wide receivers. and mm-hmm. Both made it to the Hall of Fame, which is saying... He's a 20th century version of Terry Kill. Mm-hmm. And um, would they ever retire his number? I mean, Yankees are not worrying about retiring numbers. So Ray's got to catch up. Yeah, uh, the Raider history, Mitch, the Raider history is not about Thanks. retiring numbers. It's never been about that. Uh, I don't know if Mark Davis has a different opinion on that. I haven't talked to Mark about it. Uh, the Raiders can't begin to retire numbers. This is too many. You've got to start with Jim Otto at double zero, and then you've got to work your entire way up. And then once you start getting to Marcus Allen and Plunkett and, and, and Cliff and Freddie and all those names and Stabler, you know, LaMonica, Blanda, you start going down the list of Hendricks and all the Hall of Famers, that's a lot. That's a lot. I have opinions on that also, and I defer to Mark because Al Davis didn't want to retire numbers. That wasn't what he did. Now, I'm a, I'm a believer in a ring of honor. I'm a, a believer in what the Raiders are doing at the stadium, at the concourse level by the torch with the, with the numbers and the names up there. But I, I think what, what's the most important thing for the Raiders is they treat every alumni the same. You don't have to be a Hall of Famer. You played for the team, you're treated the same. And the Raiders really care about Canton because the story of the Raiders is embedded throughout Canton, Ohio. You just go in there and go into that Hall of Fame room with a bus star, and there's Raiders everywhere. And there's only a few obvious ones left. 
right? And what I mean, I don't want to disrespect anybody, but the obvious ones that are left are Jim Plunkett and Lester Hayes. That is obvious. Then you can go down a list of guys who I think who should be in. Greg Townsend, who had more sacks than Howie Long. And then other people push out, and then they talk about Villa Piano and other great players that have played. And then you have these borderline guys. Well, remember one thing. If you're a borderline Hall of Famer for the Raiders, Canton don't let you in. Look at Cliff, look at Coach Flores, and look at Stabler. Those guys weren't borderline anything in life, and they held them back when they could have let their families enjoy 20 years of bliss going back as VIPs, VIPs, and let them sit on the dais at the Hall of Fame. Coach Flores should have been going back there for 25 years as a Hall of Fame coach, sitting there with Don Shula, sitting there with all the other coaches that were still alive, and Coach should have been sitting there with them. He didn't hold it personally. We interviewed him a bunch on that. He didn't hold it personally. But for the Stabler family to have to wait for Ken Stabler, thinking as long as Terry Bradshaw was in the Hall of Fame, as long as those gentlemen were in the Hall of Fame who played in that era, and then to make Stabler wait, Len Dawson's in, but Stabler's not. When you look at the list of Hall of Famers, to make the Stabler family wait that long, to make John Madden wait that long, how about John Madden? He even said in his speech, 20 years, he thought it was over. How did I forget Coach Madden? He didn't care. He was working. He's becoming a multi, worth hundreds of millions of dollars with this video game empire, working broadcast. He's not in the Hall of Fame. And the highest winning percentage of all time when he ended. How'd they make him wait? It's a Raider injustice. But as I have that tone now going, kind of about this forgiveness for Cliff and who cares now? Now it's about the party. Now it's about the party. You know, when you go to a great party, you don't walk into the party being Debbie Downer. You go into the party pumped up, looking to get everybody fired up, and that's what we should be doing. Gangster Raider checking in on the flagship of the Raiders. Hey, what's happening, JT? I agree with you and Al Davis. We got too many Raider greats to retire numbers. We have to um, give our current players triple digits. If that was the case, because all the numbers would be pretty much retired. But as far as Cliff goes, I think every current wide receiver in it, not only NFL, but every current wide receiver, period, needs to be at that induction fame for Cliff because he's the original um, over-the-top guy. If it wasn't for him doing what he had to do, wide receivers wouldn't be getting paid the money they're getting paid today. It's because of Cliff starting that and making it like necessary mm-hmm. for every team to go out and get like a an offensive wide receiver threat because Cliff was the original. He's the OG, you know what I'm saying? And, and him and Al Davis coming together because, you know, Al Davis always wanted to attack and throw the bomb and go deep. It was the perfect marriage, you know what I'm saying? And it's, um, I'm trying to get to um, Ken, you know what I'm saying? My finances is kind of funny, but I'm trying to mm-hmm. get there, JT. But it's a big, it needs to be a big old party for Cliff. And every everybody that played wide receiver or currently played wide receiver needs to go and pay homage to Cliff. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And we, like I say, I agree with you about the um, numbers. We got too many Raider greats to retire numbers. We have to give our current players triple digits. And it's going to be a great <laughs> summer, starting off with the summer of Cliff. And I salute you, JT, for giving Cliff his flowers. It's, it's a shame he's not here, you know what I'm saying? But he's here in spirit between you and Mark and the rest of the real Raider fans. Let's keep it gangster for Cliff. I'm gone. Thank you. Appreciate that. And don't thank me. This is a this is a little I'm doing to try to just be a part of this. So I'm honored to be a part of it, to be back in Canton and help in any way that I could. You know, it, when you think about Lance Allworth, the first the first individual that Al Davis inducted, Lance Allworth, that tells you everything about Mr. Davis. And I think it's nine 
that Mr. Davis inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. That record will never be beaten, I don't think. I don't think Jerry Jones will catch it. I think Mr. Davis has that. And you got to put Lance Allworth on that list for Mr. Davis, the legendary Charger. And he's the one who started it off. He started it off before Cliff and, and was that guy. And I just spent time with Steve Largent. Uh, the Blitnikoffs do a really nice job at their golf tournament here. Now that it's in Vegas, as they invite Hall of Fame receivers. So Steve Largent comes, Charlie Joyner, Paul Warfield. It's the only event where you'll see wide receivers in the Hall of Fame. Tim Brown, Jerry Rice over the years. So that's a nice touch, and Cliff was a big part of that over the decades. 702-365-9200. Hey, before we continue with the phone calls, a prayers to Alex Smith and his wife. Remember, Alex Smith had that catastrophic leg injury. Now we find out that his youngest daughter had brain surgery, a very rare malignant tumor, and that's a big story today. He, re- he revealed that on Saturday that his daughter and youngest child, Sloan, was diagnosed in May with a rare brain tumor that required emergency surgery. Now, he had a life-threatening health scare of his own when we saw what happened to his legs, but he said that the doctors were able to remove 100% of the tumor and that Sloan bounced back from surgery. He also wrote that his family is awaiting testing to learn more about the treatment and this very rare tumor. She's a gorgeous little girl, and everybody needs to throw, uh, keep her in their thoughts today. Uh, let's get back to the phones and continue with Mac in Los Angeles on the Raiders mobile app. Hello, Mac. Hey, JT. How you doing, man? I'm doing good. Thank you. Hey, it, it is a crying shame that um, our guys, the Raider players, are taking this long to get in. Um, but I just want to say at least we got clips in, and that's because of you and and Mark Davis and everybody pointing out. I got a 21 jersey. Um, quick story. Uh, um, Cliff was uh, a uh, Raider with the L.A. Raiders, and um, I was living down not too far from the Coliseums. Got into one of the games and uh, was at the tunnel and threw me a, 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 a wristband. And, uh, man, I, I was so happy, man. I, Cliff Branch always been my favorite player. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're right. He, he should have been in there a long time ago before any of the, those other receivers. But it's because he, you know, he was a Raider and they thought they were putting in too many Hall of Famers. But I did want to ask you about mm-hmm. the um, upcoming team mm-hmm. and uh, uh, the defense. Yep. Uh, you know, in the last – since Derek Carr has been there in the 14 14- since uh, 2014, our defense has been ranked like in the bottom, bottom ten. Now, I mean, not and, and it's been bad. I think we're gonna do real well. But the problem I, I'm looking at is that we need a we need a playmaker, a young playmaker, linebacker. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, uh, Diablo be the guy. And uh, also, we, I, I just don't buy uh, the corner, the young kid. Um, Mullen, mm-hmm. I think we need to get a veteran on the other side, and I'll let you go on there, JT. And uh, yeah. I'll see you in uh, Canton. I look forward uh, I to it. Heading to that game. Good. That's excited that you're going to come to Canton. I appreciate that. You know, when, when it comes, they brought in Rocky Asin, who is still a young player, and he's going to be playing, and he's he's penciled in as a starter. And I think Trayvon Mullen, as we've gone over the depth chart of this team, will be given every opportunity to be the other starting cornerback. And then I think it gets a little bit lean. It does. And, you know, a veteran corner is not as big of a priority as an offensive lineman that I think they need. But a lot of times corners get better when there's less time for the opposing quarterback to throw. And that's going to be the difference now with Max Crosby 
and Chandler Jones in the pass rush. And if they got Indomitian Sue or the defensive interior defense does a big job this year. Plus the mixing and matching of a 3-4 with a 4-3. Diablo, Malcolm Kuntz, and who they have to get to the quarterback. That helps out the secondary. Last year I was okay. They made the playoffs. I was okay with the bend, don't break. I thought it was really important when Gus Bradley came in to secure the back end of the field because Jonathan Abram, who's doing unbelievable things, by the way, in the community, we're going to talk. We're gonna, I'm putting a request to talk to Jonathan Abram on what he's doing in the community. Wow. Jonathan Abram's having an impact here. But last year, I think Gus Bradley came in and he looked at the back end of that defense. He had Trayvon Merrick as a rookie, never played. Jonathan Abram, who gets beat a lot deep downfield. And what he did is he extended the defense back and said, you're not getting behind us. And they didn't really. Raiders didn't give up a lot of big plays over the top. They gave up a lot of garbage underneath Garbage plays at the end of the game. It was a bend-don't-break defense. I don't want to see that anymore, as Al Davis said, and, and the rest of this organization based on. We'll take what we want. Now it's time with Chandler Jones and Mad, Max Crosby to have two edge rushers, so the ball is going to be coming out loose. Those quarterbacks are going to be getting them out because they're going to be under duress. These defenders must jump routes and get to the ball this year. You cannot have these lack of production numbers from the secondary. You cannot have, you can't be at the absolute bottom of turnovers and interceptions. Catch the ball. Catch the ball when it's in the air. I'm not talking about Mike Haynes, one hand, you know, losing track and, you know, Mike Haynes type players or Lester Hayes. I'm talking about guys just catching the ball when it's thrown to them. How do you work on that? I don't know. What do you do? You, you tip drills? Everything you do, they're doing it. They're doing it. But the players have to make the plays. And that has to change. Again, offensive line, do your job. Secondary, turn the ball over a little bit. Other than that, what's the weakness of this team? There is none. It's the inability to turn it over on defense and the inability to be elite or above average or average on the offensive line. There's not a human being in the NFL media who thinks the Raiders' offensive line is average. And that's going to be hard for me. That's going to be difficult for me sitting here every day taking your calls if this offensive line doesn't vastly improve in the offseason. And I think that will happen with the improvement of Leatherwood at his age and getting a great offseason of preparation. Robert in Portland, Oregon, you're up next on the flagship. Hello. Yeah, I don't know if you remember, um, I went to a Saturday night game late in 74, and the last touchdown pass that Blanda threw in his mm. career was to you-know-who, okay. Cliff. And they won 27-23. to It was a Saturday night game on December 14th of 74. Beautiful. I'll never forget. Branch was, you know, he had been with the club a couple of years, but Blanda just, uh, you know, they beat the Cowboys, and I was happier than hell. But uh, no, I Cliff was special. They double team him. Uh, he, he helped his other fellow receivers mm-hmm. when he was in the game because a lot of times he, they, could, they didn't even throw to him. Yeah, because of the double team and the double coverage that was there on Cliff Branch. That's really the success of the Raiders in all those eras, right? Who did you double team? Dave Casper, Cliff Branch, Fred Bolitnikoff, and the Raiders ran it down your throat. 
behind Highway 63 and what they were able to do with Art Shell and Gene Upshaw. I mean, they ran the ball a lot in the Stabler era. They weren't throwing on every down. Now the evolution of the quarterback is to throw it almost on every down. I often talk about Sam and Ash Injury Law, two of my great friends, making injury law work for you. All their locations, everything they do in the community here, they are fabulous. If you go to their website, salmonashlaw.com, you can learn all about them, what they practice, what they do in the community, and all the resources that you'll have. If you get injured in an accident, they'll work for you. They're awesome in California and Nevada, and I'll be driving this week from California, excuse me, to from Nevada to California and back, and if anything happens, knock wood, it's Sam and Ash Injury Law, my first call. So get your free case review by going to salmonashlaw.com because you deserve what's right. Sam and Ash, because you deserve what's right. We'll continue with your Cliff Branch calls, taking him along the way, get your opinion on exactly what's happening with him. We're supposed to have an NBA draft insider coming up named Derek Murray on exactly what's happening. Man, Bill Krakenberger made a fortune betting the draft correctly. He went against Woj. That was a huge storyline. An NBA free agency is Kyrie Irving, man. He might opt out and play for less or opt in and demand a trade from the Brooklyn Nets. Big story developing on the flagship of the Raiders. I think after game four, we knew we had them. Like, after game four, I'm like, all right, I'm wearing all black. It's going to be a funeral. Game five, it's time to go ahead and really try to kill these, you know, like kill these boys. Game six, we put the dagger in these boys. But that was kind of like that was my mindset. And so that's how I went into game five and game six with the absolute same outfit on. It was incredible. It was a part of my journey. And for me, like I said, that was my mindset, and I absolutely enjoyed that. It's incredible. That's Draymond Green, and no one can stop him now. You can't. We're all living in his world. He's got a podcast. He's hired by TNT. He's got four championship rings. He's got everything going for him, and all you got to do is just sit back and let him talk because he he has now won the right to say whatever he wants to say. And he's going to war with Kendrick Perkins because Draymond said something really racially negative about Kendrick Perkins, which I won't say on the radio. You could just go to Perkins' Twitter feed and see it, and it's pretty intense that Kendrick Perkins is talking the way he is, and he works for ESPN, and Draymond's using the words that he's using, and he works for TNT, but it's new media. And what you can do on a podcast compared to satellite radio to terrestrial radio. Uh, more from Draymond Green on Shaq and Kobe and those who have won four. He's got four or more. Shaq's got the same amount of rings as he. I want to give a big shout out to the guys who has four rings. Your, your current active players is made up of the Dubs and LJ. So that's a very short list. Shaq Diesel, who I said a million times, was growing up for me like it was Shaq. Dude was absolutely insane. Four-time club, MJ four-time club. Obviously, MJ six, but we talking about the four-time club. MJ, you're going you gonna to be a part of this club for now. We got Cole, Kareem, and like, you know, I can go on and on with this list. 
Yeah, Draymond Green's got more rings than Larry Bird. Put that sink in. Okay, he's got more than Larry Bird. He didn't mention Magic, who's got five. So when you look at rings, I've always said you don't need Tim Duncan. Tim Duncan with five, right? So if you look at the ones who have five or more rings, I just think you need one. Because if you get one ring, you're a champion. You get introduced the rest of your life as a champion. No one says, well, he won four out of eight or he won five of this. It's just about winning one. So you could have that announcement, you're a champion. And he is. One more from Draymond here as we take a look at more of his podcast and what he's talking about as he is now puffing his chest more than he ever has. The difference in between four and three may as well be having one and four. Like, it feels so night and day, like the rarefied air that we're in after winning the fourth one, then winning the third one. It's just so rare. Yeah, I, I just can't comment. I don't know what to say. I don't like him. I think as a player, he's a bully. He's a good player. He's not a great player. He's not super elite. But he can argue that he is. His game is very interesting to the enforcers and the players on great legacy dynasties where he played a big role. He didn't. Steph and Clay didn't carry Draymond. I had a conversation with a buddy of mine about that. Well, you know, Draymond, he, he, no, no, no. No one carries Draymond. He's the enforcer. He's the badass. He has a role which isn't to shoot threes like Steph and Clay. It's to clean up games when Steph and Clay don't have what they have going. Anthony in Minnesota, you're up next on the Raider flagship. Go ahead. Hey, thank you for all you do, JT. Love your show. Thank you. Hey, real quick, you know, this is the first couple of years in 20 years that I've really felt excited about having a chance to do some damage going to the playoffs. I can remember growing up in the 70s, going to some games with my family and sitting in the, uh, you know, second level there above the black hole. And, you know, we never really blew teams out back in the day. I can remember, you know, going into an afternoon game and then it gets late in the fourth quarter and the fog's kind of rolled in, the lights are coming on, and, you know, the Raiders are behind by three or four and they're driving with Stabler or whatever. And, uh, you know, we'd come back and go up on top and you'd know that the defense was going to hold it. And I felt like that last year. It wasn't like just get the ball back, but I really felt we had a chance as well if Derek went on top and got us, you know, the lead in the end there. So having said that, I don't have a really any specific catch that Branch made, but I do have mm-hmm. as a kid growing up my memory. One of the things I look forward to seeing, and it's a small thing, but it's just this image that's ingrained in my head, is you'd walk into the Raider Coliseum and you'd hear that Raiders echoing throughout the bowels of the whole stadium, and you get to your seats right there, and you look across to that north end zone, mm-hmm. and that left corner face yep. had a white sheet draped over it, and it said simply Cliff Branch, you know, right? And I was like, Branch's corner. It was beautiful, man. And then I remember the plays that I recall with Branch was him going down the left sideline, getting behind the DB, and his left hand going up, give me the ball, give me the ball. And you'd have, you'd have number 25 doing a curl, and you'd have the, you know, you'd, you'd have the tight end going down Casper, or whatever, down the middle, splitting the seam, and you sit there watching Staber, like on a little pivot, just thinking, mm-hmm. who's he going to throw it to? And he'd throw that dart right to Cliff Branch, who'd go into the end zone, man. But, yeah, I think that I want to just recap and say that this is one of the first years in a couple decades where, yeah, we're not, you know, you know, flawless, but this is a team that was like back in the day where if we can keep it close, and we will keep it close, we now have a chance, and we can do it. And that's the biggest difference we can say for this team in quite a long time. So thank you for all you do, and I'll keep listening. That's a hell of a phone call. That's a great Clip Branch phone call. Really what we came up with and what we wanted to do, that is the perfect example of that. 
uh, painting a picture of the cliff end zone, speed kills, the branch, white sheet, how cliff would be open and how Kenny, I mean, that was great. If you were driving, keep your eyes open. But I closed my eyes and I thought about what he said with the video of Kenny Stabler pivoting and bouncing with protection, right? A beautiful pocket, wondering if he was going to go to Casper, if he could go to, you know, Fred Bolitnikoff, you could go to any of the other receivers, or he just was locked in on Cliff. Fantastic way to do that. All right, our guest is here. Derek Murray is an NBA and a college basketball insider, and he is kind enough to join us. Coming off the draft, where he did a lot of work on the draft, a lot of important work, and I'm looking forward to talking to him for the first time. Derek, thanks for joining us on Raider Nation Radio. I'll jump in. Were you surprised that Paolo went number one first overall? I was. You know, we, along with a lot of others, had Jabari number one for most of this process. Um, the only thing we were comfortable calling is that it probably wasn't going to be Chet. You know, a lot of, um, based on what I was hearing, not fun conversations after the home gun workout down in Orlando, which kind of told us, okay, like those people, they want him in OKC. But then Paolo, you know, it's interesting, leaving the combine, there was a word, a little bit of a hint that Paolo was going to be the guy. And then it just drastically changed to Jabari's going to go one, and then it never budged. So I think it was a great smoke screen by Orlando. Got to give the front office a ton of credit because it caught everybody off guard. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, that's important. It happens in the NFL, but all, normally in the NFL, the number one pick is so important. It's usually a quarterback, and everybody knows it, and they're, they're trying for a smoke screen. When it's a non-quarterback year, that's what GMs get paid to do. So – with Jet going to Oklahoma City, let's go to Jabari at three and what that means for his career. Jamari, Jamari Smith is a hell of a basketball player, so I want to touch on what he did. And you also said, I went through your Twitter, that Houston loaded up. So walk me through him in Houston. Oh, man. I think Houston, one, they got a steal at number three. They got who mm-hmm. could arguably become the best player in this draft. But you have to look at all the talent around them as well. Like the fact that they got Jabari. They got Tari Eason at 17. They got Ty Ty Washington at 29, adding them with Jalen Green, Josh Christopher, Usman Garuba, and Alperin Shengun from last year. Like They are going to be a serious, serious problem if even half of these guys hit their max ceiling uh, or you know, our best outcome. They've got every position covered. They've got scores. They've got defenders, rebounders, guys who can push, guys who can handle the ball. Like, honestly, I, I really got some really close friends in that Rockets front office, and I called them after Thursday night, and I was like, dude, hell of a job by you guys. Like, I feel like you've made the right picks at each slot, um, and they addressed a lot of issues. So I'm very happy, and Rockets fans should be too. Derek Murray is our guest. Give him a follow at D. Murray Hoops. So let's stay with that. It comes off the Harden deal. Then Harden goes to the Nets. It's a disaster there. He quit on the Rockets. He quit on the Nets. He's in Philadelphia. We're waiting on that contract status. So Houston's got to be pretty happy that they got a lot out of Harden, his best years out of him. They didn't win a championship, but they got a hell of a lot in return. Yeah, I mean, same thing. You got to look at the Thunder as well. Like, you know, Rust and, and PG, very similar. You didn't get a title out of them but you were able to flip them at a correct time for a ton of assets. And now it's up to you guys to make the right call. And so far it looks like both of those organizations have made the right call. Um, be really interesting to me to see which one, you know, figures it out and really starts clicking first. I think having Shay and that experience, you know, a year with Giddy already, I'd say Oklahoma mm-hmm. city is probably on the quicker timeline, but that Rockets team, man, like seriously, very, very high ceiling if it all works. 
Uh, Derek Murray is our guest, college and NBA draft analyst, uh, knows the sport really well. We're coming off the draft, the head of NBA free agency, which I'll get to. What team outside the lottery drafted a player that could immediately help them for a playoff push? Oh, man, let's see. Outside the lottery for a playoff push, I think that Jake LaRavia and uh, David Roddy to Memphis are very, very interesting. They're two guys who the Grizzlies were high on. Um, most of this pre-draft process, uh, buddies in there, that they don't know, love these guys. They're highly intelligent, high-feel, high-character kids who don't have to take the ball away from Morant. And that's where I think they're going to be really, really good. They can shoot. They're instinctual passers. And they, you know, they're not elite defenders, um, but, but they're intelligent. They, they do, they're in the right spot at all times. So I think both LaRavia and Roddy can come in and help the Grizzlies make a playoff push early. Derek Murray joins us. Tell me about my Knicks. They have to get it right this offseason after essentially hitting the reset button again for this time a year ago and getting out of Kemba's contract, which was a disaster, and trying to make salary cap space for another star free agent. Look, Brunson's a good player, but... He's not Walt Frazier, Isaiah Thomas, John Stockton. So I, I don't know why people are getting all worked up unless there's more than one player coming in. What did the Knicks do that surprised you, or do you give them a little bit of credit for having the vision to push this back for potentially a better free agent class next year? Yeah, so I understand cap space moves. You know, it's mm-hmm. majority of trades in the NBA are cap and money related and very, I mean, honestly, not very often player related. What was interesting to me, so when they picked Usman, or, uh, Usman Jiang, again, I love Jiang. I, thought, I think he's a great prospect out of New Zealand. It was interesting to me. I thought, okay, so I thought the Knicks wanted a guy who could help him win now. This doesn't make a ton of sense. And then I hear traded Oklahoma City. And I said, okay, makes total sense. Surely the Knicks got picked number 12. And then I was floored when I heard that they did not come away with pick 12 to pick a guy again that because there were some guys on the board that could have helped them sure. win right now Duran, Agbaji, Williams, Griffin, Easton, like I could go down the list. Just my philosophy team building wise, it's hard for me to give up a known asset in either Jing or anybody else you could have picked up at eleven for an opportunity at a free agent. Now if you know for sure if I clear this money he is coming, then that is one thing. But just to give up an asset, um, at least, you know, bird in the hand type situation for a chance at somebody who may say no to you or your offer, that's a very vulnerable position. And I'm just not one to enjoy sitting in that or putting myself or my team in that spot. So if Brunson comes, yeah, great player is the right call. But that's that's just where I fall kind of on that spectrum. Yeah, ask Nick fans who pay those tickets in the lower bowl for sweets, too. How they feel about this? What what a it's a robbery for those fans that are paying the prices yeah. and got to push it back one more year. Hey, last thing: the early buzz out of New York, Kyrie Irving's contract. Everybody's speculating about his future in Brooklyn. He has a thirty-six point five million player option coming up here. Also, Bradley Beal, James Harden, Russell Westbrook. Those contracts that are over thirty-six to forty-five million dollars. Can you just give us something on the way out of maybe something that you're really looking at that could be a blockbuster trade or at least something that could work off Kyrie Irving if he doesn't stay with the Nets? Yeah, the Irving situation, I mean, (laughs) at at this point, you kind of look at every single summer and you think, oh, you know, I wonder what the Irving situation is going to be this year. It wouldn't shock me. You know, some people I've talked to, 
I, I don't know. I, I think he ends up on the Lakers in some capacity. I don't know what that wow. looks like. Um, again, like I, I don't. It, it's always a slippery slope talking about guys who are under contract with teams, but I just feel like he's going to want to end up in LA. Um, I think for blockbuster trade, it feels like we hear Bradley Beal stuff all the time, and he's, he's appeared very loyal and wanting to stay there and win in Washington. But he is a prime candidate in my mind if you're a young team on the cusp of winning and you've got a ton of assets that surely Washington would be able to listen. Like Beal would be the guy where I say, if I can trade for him right now, if I can unload the stable, of whether picks or young players, like if I can bring him to me, we're going to win. So I've seen all the John Collins stuff, really good player. I've seen the DeJounte Murray stuff, really good player. But Beal to me is the one where if you want to make a push and, and go from maybe a play-in team to a let's be a real contender, Beal's the guy that I would try to go get. Awesome. Good to talk to you, Derek. Continued success with everything you're doing. I follow you on Twitter, and we'll put out what you got when it comes, an NBA free agency and the drafts keeping you real busy. Thanks for joining us. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thank you, Derek. Derek Murray. So nice job. First time I've talked to him about the draft, uh, Bill Krakenberger and a couple of gamblers nailed it. What's the moral of the story? Go against the public. When Woj tells you that Jabari Smith's going one and Paolo Banchero's going number three, go against Woj, who then Woj tried to clean it up by tipping all of his picks and acting like he knew what the hell he was doing. Adrian Wojnarowski changed the gambling odds in Vegas with his tweet before the draft, and Bill Krakenberger drove to a little dirt road in Arizona and pounced on him. I don't know who writes these gambling stories and these gambling trades. If you don't write about, forget about me. I happened to conduct the interview. It was the only guy in the world who had that interview that day. Only person. I think that's one of the best gambling stories I've heard in a long time. Period. Unless you know of a better one where a guy drove to a dirt road outside the Hoover Dam because Woj said that. And he goes, I'm going to go against Woj. And he made a fortune. Betting a draft. I didn't think you could make money really betting drafts. But Crack found a way to do it. Multiple apps, multiple bets spread out, and he went with his gut and got it right. It's a great gambling story. Huge gambling story. All right, cover of the Las Vegas Review-Journal today, Rocky Mountain High, avalanche to throw the lightning to reach peak of the NHL. Should be the Golden Knights on our hometown newspaper. Maybe next year we wrap it up on the other side. So it was a fabulous year because during that season, we had traded Kenny Stabler to Houston for Dan Pastorini. And and here was Jim going through the same thing that he went through in 83, being the starter, losing his job for an injury when Mark Wilson take it off. Now he's in the same situation as a backup. And instead of letting him compete for the job, they was giving the job to Pastorini right off the bat. And then at the fifth game of the season, Pastorini got hurt, and Jim took us on this roller coaster ride where we were. He was nine and two as a starter, taking us to the Super Bowl, and being MVP of the Super Bowl, and then comeback player of the year. It was just a Cinderella story. Cliff Branch of the Summer of Cliff. We kicked that off today. Thanks for coming back, everybody. JT with you. 
as we continue to roll here. You know, that's an interesting story. That's why Jim Plunkett should also be in the Hall of Fame with two Super Bowl championships and a Super Bowl MVP. Cliff's teammate for two out of three of Cliff's Super Bowl rings. So when you look at that run with Plunkett and Cliff Branch, those two are joined together. I want to thank everybody at Virgin Hotels, our proud partner. I was there on Saturday night to see Primus, went to One Steak, had an unbelievable meal, went by Olives, saw my buddy Rudy, the bartender there. If you want great food, One Steak, Olives, two of my go-to spots there afterwards, had a great time after the show. I mean, just a great property to hang out and listen to live music. Live music throughout Virgin Hotels, inside the theater. I saw Chris Isaac and Lyle Lovett the week before. They do an unbelievable job. I met my wife at the old Hard Rock, and now it's Virgin, Virgin Hotels, and that theater where they put even more money into to make it nicer with the second-floor lounge. The suites have been redone. Tremendous service. So, again, another great experience at Virgin Hotels. I'll tell stories a lot about where I go. And on the weekends there, I go there to eat. I go there to get my drink on. I go, go, go to some shows and go there to meet friends in the shag room. Everything about it. It's a lot of fun. They're a proud partner. We'll be doing podcasts from there, uh, select radio shows from there, starting off in the month of July. Very proud to have Virgin Hotels as a proud partner of Raider Nation Radio. All right, that does it for us. Bobby, great job. Thanks to Derek Murray, who was kind enough to join us. Gary Lawless, Vegas Golden Knights insider. And tomorrow we have a uh, we have Jeff Hostetler. How about that? Haas is coming in tomorrow as we kick off the summer of Cliff, which is going to be really cool. And, wow, for Monday, tomorrow, Jeff Hostetler and Matt McCants. So we got two Raider alumni who are going to be a part of our summer of Cliff. And Harry Ruiz will be in for me on the back end of the week. He'll be in tomorrow, too. So I'm excited to be here. It's the summertime. We have summer programming on the flagship of the Silver and Black. Raider!